Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the world's fastest growing radio station. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, plenty of headlines this morning. Anger as PM skips Slee's showdown in the Commons. Top MP earns fortune for working in tax haven. Uh, it's all going a bit crazy for the old uh, politicians and their standards and what happens next. Let's talk to Dan Hodges, man on Sunday commentator. Dan, a very good morning to you. Morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. The big question really is, I think... Does anyone really care? Does anyone really expect politicians to behave in an honourable fashion? And, 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 and should we expect them to? Firstly, yeah, I think that I, I think people do care. Um, I think the I think part of the problem is ever since the the expenses scandal, sleaze has become a, like a cross party issue. So it's not something that, that, that always moves the polls. But I think people do care. And I think I think we should care. I think in particular we should care about the issue of whether or not MPs in primarily or exclusively for their constituent looking for for outside interests. I mean, I, I think I think one of the positives of this this latest crisis is how we're we're, we're now getting in is is the heart of the matter, um, which is our MPs doing the job as MPs, basically doing a variety of jobs, of which being an MP is is something of a sideline. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I saw your tweet earlier to say, which suggests that the second job should go. And I think I I tend to agree with you. But I suppose it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because there are all kinds of different types of second jobs. And if somebody happens to be a lawyer, uh, Jeffrey Cox is one, Sir Keir Starmer is another, they're more than likely to be offered work outside of their jobs in Parliament. Um, and and are we suggesting then that they shouldn't do that? That they should give all that up for the moment? Yeah, that's what that's what I'm suggesting. And by the way, this isn't something new. I've been banging on about this this for years because, you know, I, I I've lost count of the number of these we've had. Mm. I mean, I remember you know cash for honours, cash for questions, yeah. cash for access. We're now into cash for consultancies. You know, this keeps happening, and you know I've been saying this for years it's not a particularly popular popular view but i would just finally draw a line under this i would say right let's whack up mp salaries let's give them a a a big proper professional level salary and let's say that's it i mean you you pointed out you know one of well you know there are some mps who work as nurses some some work as doctors some do you know that, that that that's lovely but if you want to work as a doctor, excellent, wonderful, go and work as a doctor. Mm. If you want to work uh, as a lawyer, excellent, go and be a lawyer. But if you want to be an MP, you've got to be an MP. And the reason why is because we keep getting into these situations. We keep getting into these these scandal these scandals. People keep trying to sort of bend the rules. Sometimes they get away with it, sometimes they don't. Every time, though... The image of MPs, the image of Parliament, the image of our politics is traduced even further, and it's just time to draw a line on it. Because I think, because what I know what's going to happen, we're going to have there's going to be a thing of right. Some committee is going to go off, make recommendations. They'll fudge it again. People will say, well, this has helped clean up politics, and in a couple of years' time, we'll be back here doing exactly the same thing again when some MP has found another loophole and exploited it. Yes. Exactly right. And I mean, the thing is, it happens to be uh, endemic, doesn't it, all over the place. It's probably going on the Lords as well, where there are people advocating for certain, you know, um, uh, professional bodies or advocating for certain industries. Nobody really knows for sure what's going on there. And it's supposed to be a transparent system, but it sort of isn't, is it? Well, I think part I think part of the problem is, I mean, look at what's happened. Look at, look at what's happening today with this the latest thing about about the Jeffrey Cox thing, who was off um who was off in the Caribbean earning hundreds of thousands of pounds and doing his duties as an MP via 
via Zoom. Now, what what nobody seems to be pointing out is that was perfectly within the rules. He was perfectly within the rules of the House of Commons yeah. entitled entitled to do that. And this is within a situation, as I said, this is after we've been through all the other scandals and all the changes that have been made since the other scandals. And that is still allowed to happen. Now, palpably, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's self-evidently a ridiculous system and it just can't continue like that. Mm. But so, so as I said, it's very it's not it's not actually complicated. Simply say you can't have a second job. Right. And if people would rather have their second jobs, if they'd rather be lawyers and doctors or whatever, fine. Then we'll get MPs who who just want to be MPs, and that's fine. Yeah. What about the unions though? Because the Labour Party might say to you, Dan, that they've got sort of reasons why the unions have to sort of sponsor an MP uh, because that's what they feel like they should be doing. Would you rule that out as well? Well, I think that's. I think the pro. But I think that gets us into a, into a completely separate issue, which is, do we want money in politics? Now, the reality is, if you've got money in politics, whether it's by from unions or big big businesses or rich business businessmen, they are for philanthropic reasons. They are doing it because they want something in return. If you mm. give a lot of money to a political party, you want something specific in return. The question is, if we want to break break the link with that, fine. But then we're going to have to have state funding of political parties. Now, is that politically viable? Do people want to see money that could be spent on more nurses, more doctors, more police, more teachers being spent on paying political parties to run attack ads against mm. each other? I just don't think we're there yet. No. I don't think that's a viable option. And I, so, and I think it's all right to have funding for political parties, providing that there are, again, a set of strict rules and regulations in which, you know, you can't have so much funding that you kill the other guy because you've got more money than them uh, and that you can't have any influence as a donor. No, and, 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 you know, this is where the issue is transparency. You know, if so long as we know that somebody is, you know, someone is giving money, so long as that it's open, we know they're giving money. We're not stupid. We can all work out why. Why after that, I have I have less of a problem with that. But I do think, as I said, I think the big problem now is just again with with MPs and MPs' personal propriety, and we just keep getting into these these the, these scandals. And it's a bit like it's a bit like you know that scene in 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 Casablanca when Claude Rain <laughs> says, "Oh, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. There's gambling yes. going on here." You know, we keep doing this. Mm. Everybody knows Jeffrey Robinson is earning a lot, <laughs> earning a lot of money via his consultancies. Everybody knows other MPs are doing this, but it's in the rules. Yeah. So a week ago, no one was interested. Now suddenly, we all have to run around being outraged and shocked. And then, in in another couple of weeks' time, we'll have moved on to something else. Yes. But that's that's what I wonder <laughs> about. Because, go back to normal. And that's what I wonder about, because I wonder, I mean, I saw a, a tweet yesterday from someone who said basically, well, Boris got what he wanted by not actually going to the debate yesterday, because clearly something is going to have to change. And so now the rules probably will be changed. But it's a very odd thing to take on, isn't it? Because Owen Patterson, most people agree, overstepped the mark and broke the rules. So... Why defend him? Why try and get the whole thing reversed over something so ridiculously trivial? Well, I mean, if Boris does end up getting what what he wants, then he, he's going to have paid a pretty heavy price for it. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, he, he, he keeps he, he keeps doing it. Why he didn't just turn up yesterday, mm. fess up, say, I got this wrong, yeah. apologise, draw a line in it. He's going to have to do it anyway. He he's can't seem to do that. That be seems a, to be like almost like a, a character flaw, doesn't it? He can't duck this forever. He's going to have to turn up at PMQs. Next time he turns up at PMQs, Starmer is just going to hammer him on it. From the beginning of this, I mean, I was saying this this in my column last weekend. I cannot understand what Boris has thought he was doing with this right. from the beginning. How he thought he could, how he thought he could get away with it, and he's still trying to get away with it. Yeah, I mean, he's still he's still digging himself in a hole. Because this is what he does, though, until he gets to the point where it's so bad, like he did with Hancock. I mean, this is what I said at the start of the show. But it reminded me yesterday when he said, well, I don't think I've got anything else to say about this. It absolutely reminded me of that moment when he said, as far as I'm concerned, the matter is now closed. Two days later, Hancock was gone. Yeah, I mean, we, again, I said this in my column. I mean, the reality is Boris get away with anything, right? Labour's not really been on the, been on the park. 
the polls haven't really been changing. He's got an 80 seat majority and he thinks he can do what he thinks he can do what he likes. Mm. Now, for a short term, he can do what he's what he likes. But every time one of these things happens, it takes another chunk out of him and it takes another chunk out of the government. Yeah. I mean, Tory MPs are just I mean, I've never seen Tory MPs as angry as they were were last week. Mm. I mean, they were they were spitting blood over this and they were, you know, and, and Boris was in the frame for this. Now, as I said, he could have he could have dealt with it yesterday. He could have turned up and he could have apologised. He could have taken responsibility. And he didn't. He ran away. I mean, yeah. he was a coward. He just ran, he ran away from the whole thing. And people see that. Yeah. And people are going to remember that. Yes. But, you know, and... but do you think he's playing this long game in his own head where he thinks if he keeps everything on the long finger for long enough that it will go away and people will move on? Because that is kind of the society we now live in. I mean, look, look how far we've come since last Monday when we were all talking about climate change. That's, you know, that's not even on the agenda now. I, I think that I think the point with Boris, I mean, just to repeat what I said, I think the only thing that Boris thinks at the moment is whatever I, Boris, want to do, I, Boris, will get away yeah. with. And, you know, we saw last week, he can't just get away with whatever he wants to do. I mean, it's just he, he, he can't do it. Now, you know, if you want to give him any credit, um, you know, he did he did U-turn very quickly, as you said, in, in, as he did in the Matt Hancock thing, as he did in that time when... Remember when he got he got pinged and for like yes. two hours he was saying I'm <laughs> that not was the quickest you turn in history, wasn't it? I'm not going to isolate, even though you lot have to, <laughs> right? You know, but but the, but this but the damage was the damage was done, and you know you only get so much political capital, um, and Boris keeps spending it and wasting it on these ridiculous these ridiculous things, and sooner or later going to catch up with it yeah you would think but it might be that that doesn't happen because everybody knows that boris johnson seems to be a survivor of some kind or another and because it doesn't appear to be um much of an opposition i mean you said Sir Keir starmer was good yesterday uh, and maybe one of his finest days in in the chamber um but at the end of the day it doesn't really matter what the polls say today does it it matters what the polls say in a couple of years time no that's that's right but but you know as i say you know we will move on from this but other things will happen. Other events will happen. Other crises will happen. Yes. Some of them will be things Boris just simply can't do anything about. Others, I mean, if you, you know, what this has thrown up is what a hole at the heart of Downing Street that nobody in Downing Street was able to see this coming and say to Boris, don't be daft. You know, yeah. you, you can't do, you can't do this. Other problems are going to arise. And every time that happens, as I say, it takes it, it takes a bit of a chunk out of you. And also every time this happens, you know, as a prime minister, you need other people to rally round. You need ministers to rally round. You need your MPs to rally round. You need your activists to rally round. You know, people are getting bored of rallying yeah. round Boris. Well, for, you said it. You said it. Self-inflicted goals. You said it down at, at the top of the show. Um, you know, this latest crisis because it does seem. And I don't think I'm saying this because I'm now part of the media that always knocks Boris Johnson because I'm not. But you know, he does seem to lurch from one kind of emergency to another doesn't he yeah i mean it, well, it's, it's almost like it's the classic dom cummings line isn't it the supermarket trolley that yeah. sort of part you know part of that that's government that's what that's what you're dealing with you know one second you're dealing with covid then we're supposed to be dealing with you know the environmental crisis now we're dealing with you know the, you know owen patson so you know that's partly how, about how, how politics works but because of that because you've got so much going on, because you've got all these events that, that are outside of your control, it, it, it makes it doubly important the things you can control, you do control. Mm. Yes. And they, I mean, if Owen, you know, if if Owen Patterson had just simply said, okay, fair enough, bang to rights, I'll do my 30 days, none of none of this would have happened. Right. You know, there was a lot of sympathy in the house for Owen Patterson because of obviously, um, you know, the appalling death of his wife and the circumstances around this, you know, he, he could have done his 30 days and then everyone would have moved on. But once it became clear he wasn't going to do that, that was the moment Boris had to show leadership and say, I'm sorry, Owen, you're on your own on yeah. this. Instead of which, as I said, he's burnt all this political capital to no end. But at the, at the end of the day, I still get an awful lot of people on this radio show who will say to me, yeah, but this is all a media firestorm that's been cooked up because the media hates Boris and they're always trying to have a go at him uh, and the Labour Party hate him and try get, trying to get rid of him. Um, but actually, the people in the country who like Boris still like him and will still vote for him. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Boris is 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 much more popular than certainly the people on the left um, 
giving giving credit for. But one of the reasons why Boris is popular is he he you know his brand is you know despite what people may think about him personally his brand is of someone who actually is a little bit different and is someone who who you know cox us the you know a, a establishment politicians this is a this is a an a, an issue where he's he's been trying to help out the establishment he's been caught back to rights trying to help out the establishment trying to help out his mates trying to shift the goalposts fix the rules on behalf of his mates and it's not a good look and it shouldn't be a good look and if he keeps doing it then the the popularity he, he he's got is going to erode i mean you know politicians popularity erodes anyway i mean it's just you know yeah. they have a you know they have a particular shelf well they never leave office when they want to do they they never leave you know all, all political careers end in failure yeah and it's 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 just a question of of you know how long that 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 process of, of that disaffection process takes, and because of the events of this week, you know you know Boris isn't going to resign next week. The government's not going to fall next week, but it's done political damage, and it was political damage that that that, that he didn't need to have. But will the standards um, business be reformed as a result of this, and will it be reformed for the better as far as taxpayers are concerned? Well, it'll certainly be. I, I mean, I think it will be reformed. I mean, I think you know, I think there's a there's a there's a, a this this event has shown shown there are flaws in the process. I mean, I personally think you know, any process in which you have MPs effectively um, policing MPs is 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 problematic. I think yeah. there needs to be a much stronger in, in, independent element into this um, into this process. But as I say, I've got to be honest. I, you know, I've I've seen so many of these things. I think there will be reform, but I think it will be some form of messy compromise. I think people will say, oh, well, there we are. We've we've cleaned up politics. And then in a couple of years time, we'll be back on another one of these things. And people will suddenly say, oh, actually, you know what? We didn't clean it up after all. Yeah, no, of course, because it's very, very difficult to do. That's the problem, isn't it? Because you can't necessarily say to somebody who's got a business that you can't have a business anymore. So if you're the, I don't know, the chief executive of your own small company, are you supposed to resign while you're an MP? Are you supposed to hand over control of that company to somebody else? Or can you still take a dividend? Can you still take, you know, it's, 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 there are problematic sort of individual cases that are going to come up. No, I think I, I, I actually, I, I take a different view. I don't, I don't think it is difficult at all. I think if, I think you, I, I think if you have that situation, <clears throat> I think you do hand over management of the company. I think you then have, you know, the company or other things are run are run by a trust. You are completely separate from that, from the point where you are a member of parliament. And then, if you want to stop being a member of parliament, you can you can go back to it. You you, you have to make a choice. Well, can somebody you, put money into a, a trust for you during that five year or ten year period? Then, yeah, I mean, there, there are there are processes where where all these things are these these things are managed, particularly for ministers, for prime ministers. Oh. There are systems in place for that. It should apply. It should apply to MPs. You know, it, it, if you want to be a member of parliament, it's you know it's an honour being a parliament, a member of parliament. It's a privilege being a member of parliament, and also it's a full time job. You are there to work exclusively on behalf of your constituents and on behalf of the country, and you can't do that if you're splitting your time and you're splitting your interests. And and, and we keep seeing that. Or I mean, there is the other side that simply we say, right, well, you know, we're going to accept. The, the, the thing that you said which is well that they are going to have outside interests in certain instances and that's just that's just the way they fine in which we in, in which case we've all got to be more grown up about it and not as i say suddenly turn out mm. you know once every year and say oh my god there's gambling going on in this yes. establishment you know no, we've, we've so. got to be mature ourselves but one way or another we have to make a choice on this and yes. we have to make a clear choice not this sort of misty halfway house we've got at the moment and if you've got the likes of jeffrey cox making a million quid from his legal practice in the same time as he's working uh, in government or if he's working as an mp um maybe people like jeffrey cox disappear and you might say well so what but you know what i don't want as well is a sort of professional civil service type class of people running government and running um the, the, the parliamentary processes because you need characters you need people who've got a bit of experience we're all saying that you don't want to just have a sort of professional politician class, do you? No, I think that's right. We want people from a diverse, a diverse array of backgrounds. But equally, you know, we need. You know, I like Jeffrey Cox. I, res you know, respect Jeffrey Cox. But the reality is, Jeffrey Cox can't sit in sit in the Caribbean 
doing his doing his parliamentary duties via via Zoom while he's earning hundreds of thousand pounds for his in his private consultancy. I mean, that's just it, you know that's not a debatable issue. Everybody knows you can't you can't have a situation where that where that operates. So if the result of of any reform is people we lose people like Jeffrey from from Parliament. I'm very sorry about that, but that's what's going to, happen, yeah. going to have to happen. Well, here's your chance for Keir Starmer to do something, right? He could just come out today and say, actually, I've decided that I'm no longer going to do any private legal work and uh, I'm going to show uh, leading by example is the way to go. Well, I think the key I think the key thing with Keir Starmer is, I mean, my understanding is there was some discussion um, amongst Keir Starmer's team over the, the weekend about, about moving on this second jobs, but he's nervous about it. I think, I think less for him, less for himself, or might be a part of it, I think because there are also, you know, we've got to be honest about this. I mean, you know, Labour's doing a good job making this into Tory sleaze. There are Labour MPs who want to have the opportunity to have second jobs mm. as well. This this, this, go, this this goes this goes across. But as I said, somebody has to just basically draw a line under this now and say, right, that's it. And the only way you're going to do that is if, in my view, is if you say, right, you're an MP, you're a full-time MP, that's it. Yes. And now the rules are going to change. I think that's the only way to go. Dan, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Dan Hodges, man on Sunday, commentator, of course, columnist as well. Um, the point about MPs, surely, is that you do need a good selection of people who have come from a variety of walks of life. If you say to them, you can't make any more money from any other business at all, I don't think that's going to work. I think it needs to be a bit more nuanced than that. And I want to hear from you on this one. 0344-499-1000 is the number. This is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Andrew Montford, Deputy Director of Net Zero Watch, because Quasi Kwarteng has put out um, a tweet today saying basically that they're going to launch some tiny nuclear power plants up and down the country. Uh, they reckon they're going to put one in for every one million homes. Now, whether that's going to be viable, whether it's going to be feasible, it seems to me like a pretty good idea, much better than telling us all to get heat pumps, isn't it? Let's find out from Andrew uh, if he's in favour. Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning to you. I mean, on the face of it, this seems like using technology um, for something decent and for improvement rather than just, you know, virtue signalling and costing us an awful lot of money. Yeah, I mean, it is it is um, probably the most sensible um, energy proposal that we've had for many years. Uh, small nuclear uh, power, power stations are... Pe- people think that they might be quite a lot cheaper than um, the traditional big nuclear power stations. That will make them a lot cheaper than um, wind farms, um, and particularly um, offshore wind farms, um, although they will probably be still quite a lot more expensive than gas turbines, perhaps, mm. you know, sort of 50% more expensive. But, you know, zero carbon, more, a bit more expensive is certainly uh, much better than zero carbon um, and crazily more expensive, crazily more expensive. So, yeah. yeah and rolls yeah, royce have won rolls royce have won the contract to build these reactors which they can which apparently they can make in one place and transport to another place which is another difference isn't it from traditional very large nuclear um, uh, factories that they build nuclear power stations yeah that's right i mean these are I mean, in fact the rolls rolls are talking about they call them small modular reactors they are actually quite big mm. they're they're half a gigawatt now a, a, a big gas-fired power station will be two gigawatts this is half a gigawatt right there's actually companies in america who are making much smaller ones which is really what people in the industry think of as a small modular reactor where they're they're, they're sort of you know a tenth of that of the size of rolls is one the other thing about them is they're much closer to market in the states rolls don't even have a design yet we understand mm. so this is going to be something that you know won't get built for you know 10 years or more they've got to go through this awful bureaucratic design uh, approval process um, before they can actually start building things. So we're not going to see anything in the short term. Okay. And as far as the numbers uh, are concerned, I mean, how many do you think they're planning to, to build and will they be able to build enough, I suppose, is the is the question. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if, if they, they will build as many as they need, if they are as cheap as um, people say that they, they uh, are likely to be, then we'll just keep building more and more of them. And, you know, th- there are a limited number of sites that are likely to uh, be suitable because these, these uh, power stations need cooling water. Mm. Um, so they, you know, they have to be on certain sites where there is a water supply, but, you know, if, 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 
one power, one small reactor on that side isn't enough, then you go ahead and you build two on the on the site. Right. So, so yeah, you think you carry on building them? So most of these would be sort of on on or near the coastline. Do you think? I think that's right. Yeah. Mm. Because one million homes obviously uh, is a, is a big start, but if you need to build sort of twenty to thirty of those smaller nuclear reactors i mean there's a planning issue presumably you've got to buy the land you've got to make sure that there's no complaints or 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 petitions from the local residents because there are still people out there who think i don't want to live very close to a nuclear facility just in case something goes wrong absolutely i mean there has been um you know we've had a 50-year campaign to demonize nuclear and 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 um convince the public that that nuclear is terribly terribly dangerous in fact statistically nuclear is is probably the safest form of energy there is partly because it is so overregulated but um yeah the the idea that um you know um these these uh, power stations are going to melt down and, and and kill lots of people is is a bit ridiculous mm. really i mean even chernobyl <laughs> didn't kill very many people <laughs> i mean it, it, yes you know, but you wouldn't uh, want to live very close to it though would you well, I mean, there are. There's a famous story about there. Was, you know, an old guy who who didn't want to leave his home. He stayed there, and he's apparently still living there at the age of eighty something. <laughs> you know, it didn't actually cause no. any harm. No, no. Listen, but that doesn't, of course, as we know, you know, just because you tell people something isn't dangerous doesn't mean that they don't think that it might be anyway. Um, no, that's right. You because know, especially all, you, all you've got... got to do is cast your eyes north to Glasgow if you want to see some superstitious people jumping about talking about you know the Doomsday Book and how we're all going to die. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of money to be made in scaremongering. So, um, yeah, people will do it until, until the cows come home. Yes. I mean, speaking of COP26, I'm, I'm not quite sure what's going on up there. Uh, Barack Obama flew in yesterday uh, for no apparent purpose, uh, apart from to slag off Donald Trump and to tell us all that, uh, you know, we must save the planet. I'm seeing this morning in The Times, the Chinese and the Saudis are now looking at uh, thwarting any kind of climate deal because they're not going to reveal what their actual greenhouse gas emissions are. There's a surprise. Yeah, no, um, this is this is exactly as we expected. Um, I'm, we're still expecting that they will come out with a big announcement at the end, announcing a huge success. Um, and once you actually get down and read it, it will say um, that nothing's binding and it's all it's it's pledges, but it's nothing more than that. Right. Um, it, as you say, in reality, the Chinese aren't going to play ball. Well, I mean, all the green sort of campaigners are already saying it's a failure, aren't they? Absolutely. I and mean, the fact that I guess this is something new, the, the fact that the Greens are saying that it's a failure <laughs> now instead of trying to go through with this you know, pantomime of, oh, yes, we are going to achieve something meaningful, meaningful at the end. So maybe they're giving up on the process, which actually would be welcome, because then, you know, we can start to look at uh, more realistic plans, you mm. know, things like small, small modular nuclear reactors, which, you know, OK, people like me who, who are less concerned about um, global warming, will go okay well it's a bit expensive but it's uh, you know it's certainly not as daft as the as the as the road we're going down now so um yeah if 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 the cop process is is coming to an end and and we're going to stop we won't have a cop 27 we can hope mm. um if that happens then uh, we may be um uh, able to get ourselves onto a more sensible path one that won't leave us impoverished cold and in the dark <laughs> and when you put it like that it seems almost uh, unavoidable that we would not watch them watch want to go there but i mean when you watch the bbc and sky on the weekend i think it was friday when it was supposedly youth day and they were interviewing all these kind of 13 and 14 year olds and i think some 10 year olds about what we should do to solve the climate problem you can't go in come on guys i mean this is not really news now no yeah the, the whole thing is is Rather sinister, I think. I think um, so. the, the fact that the whole of of the broadcast media, well, you know, with certain honourable exceptions, thank you very much. Um, um, and and all and most of the most of the the print media as well are all essentially propagandising. It, it's it's rather scary. I think it's not a healthy way to run um, um, a free um, a free society. I think yeah, we do need to to um, support those you know, few honourable. Ex- exceptions in the media who are asking questions and you know letting letting different voices be heard because the 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 problem we've had is we've had 20 years of um, essentially only the green message being heard and it's 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 leading us into a crisis i mean this winter Mm. is still is still going to looking as though it's going to be quite interesting for um the energy supply um you know i'm told we're getting snow here in scotland um next week 
um and you know we don't have a lot of gas to burn so um it, it's it, the winter's going to be interesting i think yeah i think so excellent good to talk to you andrew thank you very much indeed andrew mott for deputy director of net zero watch encouraged by the government's plan uh, to roll out this uh, uh, development of smaller nuclear facilities for uh, creating power for the country certainly seems a lot better use of government money uh, than just simply subsidizing people to buy green um, heat pumps to put in the garden well, the key thing is that the vaccine doesn't stop transmission of the right. virus. Well, so that's, that's the main that's, thing, really, isn't that's, it? That's the main thing to hone in on. Um, and, of course, things like this can be pushed through because they cherry-pick yeah. data. So you, you just mentioned in your intro um, the misuse of statistics yes. by the NHS chief exec. So she said there were 14 times more patients... Um, COVID patients in hospital in November than this time last year. Right. That was not true. It was true in August, right. but it wasn't true in November. Actually, on the 5th of November, there were 7,072 patients in hospital and falling. And on the 5th of November 2020, it was 10,994 right. patients and rising. Yes. Now, people are wising up to this. They're wising up to this plucking out of the air of the big numbers mm. and using them to support narratives and they're really objecting strenuously which I thought was great you know yes. the NHS isn't getting away with it anymore but it's not the first time it's not the first time is it what they do is you know there's um a narrative they want support which mm. this time was get your covid booster and then they look around for supporting evidence and they did a really bad job this time but just over a year ago, um, in December, Simon Stevens, former chief exec of the NHS, said on the 29th of December that there were 20,426 patients in hospital with COVID. Yeah. Now, that number was true, but it was a misuse because I had some privileged access to insider NHS info at the time. And actually, only 20% of those people had gone to hospital because they were ill with COVID and been admitted right. for it. A further 25% caught it after they were in hospital right. or something else. Because it is the one place you know for sure you're going to catch it. Well, it's it's one of the big problems of the epidemic, hospital-acquired mm. infections. And then the remaining 55% had tested positive after being in for something else but didn't really have COVID symptoms. So they took this big number and used that to drum up fear in order to support that January mm. lockdown. So this kind this kind of happens over oh, and does. over again. Well, I had a doctor on last week, an NHS osteopath, who told me uh, when I pressed him on it that there were two thousand, effectively two thousand pregnant women in uh, ICU units in hospital, right? Yeah. And it turned out that was exaggerated by a factor of ten. Mm. And he told me that there were nine thousand or thereabouts people in ICU units around the country. When in fact it's nine thousand of the total number of COVID patients, not in ICUs, but just in hospital. So, and then he later uh, sort of said on Twitter, oh, I didn't manage to get the numbers right. And you go, well, you got them wrong by quite a substantial amount. So either you didn't know what they were after you told me that there was a lot of pregnant women who were unvaccinated who were having, um, you know, ICU treatment. It turned out to just to be complete rubbish. There are some, but there's not 2,000. 
you know, we can all make mistakes and get numbers wrong. There's also a thing of confirmation bias. People are looking for what they want to see. Mm. But if you go on radio, you have a responsibility to try and get the numbers right. I do my reams of homework for yes. you, Mike, every week. You have to try and get it right. Um, and it's really irresponsible to drum up fear like that. Mm. But this is, I think this is just really damaging trust in um, the the mainstream media. Somebody called it the misleader, I uh -huh. noticed on Twitter yesterday. Right. But also now the NHS, because NHS bosses should not be doing this. Mm. And that's that's just not good for us long yeah, term, well, is it? Yeah, because it's not good for them. It's not good for the credibility of the NHS for a start, because the person we're talking about is Amanda Pritchard, isn't it, who is the head of NHS mm. England. Now, she should surely know better than to give out wrong information. And if she had said, for example, in August it was higher, but now it's lower, presumably that was not the message she wanted to, 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 to sort of pass on. She wanted people to think that the numbers were going up, not down. Mm. So I'm, I'm reluctant to say she made a mistake, and I'm more, more likely to believe that she did it deliberately. Well, if she didn't, somebody did. Mm. Somebody in her team did. This, this can't possibly be an accident. It's too, it would be too stupid. Yeah. I'm and sure then we're now told stupid. there's something like 100,000 people in, in the NHS who are not double vaccinated, right? Which is about 10% of the population, apparently. Uh, sorry, not the population, of the, of the number of work, workers in the NHS. Now, some of them may not be on the front line. Some of them may be in back rooms. Some of them may mm. be in offices. You know, but they're now going to be told, maybe, that they're going to lose their jobs in April. Yeah, so we've got two crunch points coming up. On the 11th, that's the day when care workers mm. are going to lose their job for not right. being vaccinated. You've already covered that this morning with that, that video. And, um, yeah, NHS staff are next. So I've just published a story from an, NH, uh, an NHS nurse there, anonymous in the story because they don't want to lose their job. Right. Um, this is somebody who has been a nurse their whole working life and... This article is so moving. I've, I've already had a, a vicar email me this morning offering to counsel them and a doctor on the phone in tears and other NHS staff contacting me. It's so moving because this nurse is searingly intelligent and insightful about the whole epidemic mm. and really, really cares. This is someone who's born to be a nurse. Now, they have reservations about having the vaccine for their own personal reasons, right. but one of which is they've had COVID and they have antibodies. Right. And they understand that the vaccination doesn't provide them with sterilising immunity, which they don't need because they've had COVID, but mitigates symptoms. And they don't want to have the vaccine. And they've got reasons for that, which shouldn't be anybody else's business, in my view. Even if your no. employer says you should tell us about this, in most cases, you don't have to. You yeah. know, if you're suffering from something um, which is your own private affair mm -hmm. and your boss comes to you and says, what's wrong with you? are you on some kind of medication? You are under no obligation to tell them that, to give them your private medical information at all. Well, you shouldn't be. And this nurse shouldn't even have to say so in, in this article, except they want to you know, convey their whole perspective on it. Hmm. So because of that, this is a nurse who will end up leaving the NHS. And this is exactly the kind of nurse you do not want. You do not want this nurse to leave the NHS. No. They should be there. But that's not the whole reason. Also, they're, they're appalled. They're in knots about the idea of a two-tier society. And part of the reason is they have practical experience of working with COVID patients. So they do something that's called um, COVID patient remote monitoring. It's effectively a virtual COVID ward. Right. So they look after people before they're ill enough to be in hospital, okay. provide symptom support, reassurance, monitoring, and transfer them to hospital if they need to. And every single one of their patients right now is double and triple vaccinated. Mm. So it doesn't stop you getting COVID. No. And that's given them this additional perspective. And I mean, honestly, befuddled wouldn't, they're befuddled, in pain, confused, and angry about the fact that vaccines would be mandated for anybody. Right. And they can't be part of it. So when this happens in the NHS, not just because they don't want the vaccine, but because they don't think this should happen to anyone, mm. they'll leave. Yeah. How, how and we we're got, already how have we told. Got here? Well, and if say for example, um, fifty percent of those one hundred thousand people decide to get vaccinated, you still lose fifty thousand. And apparently, we're already in a short shortage of, uh, of of supply for nurses, for doctors, for all sorts of people, right? Yeah. But what, that... are you, what about people that say, but surely if you're in the NHS, you would want to uh, be vaccinated? Because there is that belief abroad where there are some people, and I've heard them say it. Well, surely if you work in the medical business, you would be vaccinated because either you believe in it or you don't. OK. And that's a kind of a strange thing to say, I think. I think it's strange. I mean, this nurse in, you know, in their own experience, they've had every vaccination and booster they've ever been asked to have. 
they don't want this one for all the good reasons right. I've just explained and that's completely understandable but you could have any sort of reason for an exemption it's, it doesn't mean it doesn't negate you wanting to be in the NHS or to care right. for people yeah it doesn't mean that you don't believe in the NHS or that you don't believe in medical um, you know cures for things does it no I think that's a really simplistic argument that's being used to to turn around on people and attack them yeah. for completely reasonable and personal objections yes. I, I'm, I'm just fed up with it. It's facile and it's mean, actually. It's yes. an oversimplification. But then there was a report in The Telegraph yesterday. Now, this is, this is a really important statistic, but it's being misused. That 11,600 people have died after catching COVID in hospital. Right. This is something I've been trying to alert people to since last summer. I wrote my first article about um, hospital-acquired infections last year. It's really important we know this number. But this number is being used to prop up the idea that NHS staff should be vaccinated mm. as a justification for mandating vaccinations. But what else could we use that number for? We could say, well, look, hospitals are built like mini cities and it's useful in lots of ways to have lots of health care under the same roof. But for an infectious disease, it's a nightmare. Mm. We could use this figure to talk about the fact that um, NHS staff haven't had adequate PPE, especially at the beginning. Right. You know, you had ITU staff that were fully goggled up, but everyone else in a pinny and a surgical right. mask, and also a lot which of doesn't what, do anything. And an awful lot of what they were doing and what they thought they were doing for good, like cleaning surfaces and all of that, they then later said it didn't matter. Yeah, right? sure. An emphasis on fomite transmission yeah. rather than the fact that it's an, an airborne yeah, aerosol virus. Exactly. Totally. Um, or we could talk about the fact, well, this figure shows that one of the biggest problems we've had in the epidemic is hospital-acquired infections, and lockdowns were never going to touch that, no. apart from reducing overall traffic in hospitals. But no, what this figure is being used to do is justify the fact that NHS staff must suck up their mandatory mm. vaccination. It's another example of a big number being cherry-picked to support a story. Right. And what they don't give you, and I had this with a conversation with that doctor who gave me the wrong figures, I said, what we don't see or are never told is the numbers of people who are dying who are still over the age of 80. You know, if there is a rise, for example, in the number of people going into hospital, which they say was in August, mm -hmm. who are those people? You know, what are they suffering from? Do they have comorbidities? Are they vulnerable? Because there's an awful lot of people that have not been affected by this disease. Loads, in fact. Mm. But the majority of the population have not been in contact with COVID or haven't had it. Those who have had it mostly have been fine. Mm. But we don't. All we hear is that it's a very dangerous disease, and lots of people are dying. And you know, we must be able to prevent these deaths. Well, not necessarily. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you see people um, in broadcast coverage and in the papers who are suffering in hospital, and often they're the um, unvaccinated but regretful infected yeah. COVID patients. They they look young. You know, they're, they're really looking hard to find these young people yeah. because. This is, this is data we have, of course. Most people are, are elderly or they have comorbidities mm. or they're immunocompromised. That's Yes, that that's would clear. seem to be the majority of people who are injured. I remember watching mm. a Channel 4 news report um, back in the summer of last year where they went inside an ICU unit where, surprise, surprise, they found some people who weren't very well. And I'm going, well, it's an intensive care unit. Of course, they're not very well, but they were well enough to be interviewed. So they weren't actually, you know, at death's door. But they were three pa there were three patients in this COVID ward, uh, which was an ICU ward. Mm. And all three of them were, 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 able, were well enough to talk and be interviewed by the, by the woman with the camera and the great big microphone. And it was just this kind of absolute horror story that they were mm. trying to create. And it was simply, well, this is what happens in an ICU ward. People yeah. are lying there in a bed. They don't look great. They're not dying. They're fine. Well, you know, there's been this kind of uh, three-pronged uh, approach to making people do what they're supposed to do. There's the cherry picking of the big numbers and the misuse of statistics to frighten right. people. Then there's the the patient. There's the there's the heartrending story of the suffering patient, you know, the victim of COVID. And then there's the anxious pleas from overworked hospital staff. Mm. But I think it's wearing really thin. It is. I mean, personally, I find it depressing to see the same old lines being trotted out over and over again. But like I said to you before, people are wising up, and they are beginning to object quite strenuously. And it's looking it's looking poor, isn't it? Well, an awful lot of the reports I get from people just visiting hospitals is that, by and large, they're quite empty. There's not a lot of people in them. If you go to the an A&E ward, there's not a lot of people there. I got a report from somebody down in Cornwall the other day who said that if you're rushed to an A&E uh, down here, you're taken in triage and sent back out to an ambulance to wait indefinitely to be admitted to hospital or to the A&E department as long as you provide a negative PCR test. 
So if you're being rushed to hospital, they're not actually treating you and allowing you to be admitted to that hospital unless you test negative for COVID. But more than likely, you'll test positive once you've been there for a couple of days. Oh, I mean, you know, it's oh, mad, it's, isn't it? That is bonkers. Did I tell you about um, going to A&E with my son, though? Did, did we I talk about I don't think so. Okay, so I had to take my son to A&E because he broke his hand. Oh, dear. And, um, what, recently? Uh, it was quite recent, yeah. It was a couple of months ago. We had to give up waiting because it was actually too crowded. Mm. It wasn't empty. Right. It was It was really busy. And what they said to me in A&E, and I don't want to come across as gp bashing but they said gps aren't seeing people as much so they're really overwhelmed in a and e we had to leave we Mm. had to leave with an untreated broken hand and go back the next day because we were going to be there all night and as we arrived somebody else was leaving with a broken foot who they hadn't been seen hadn't been triaged it was not good it felt like we're in some kind of medieval sixth circle of hell actually yes and that is the problem because the knock-on effect of all of these things not working properly like the gps not Mm. seeing people properly not diagnosing things properly means people are getting sicker and having to go to a and e or having to be admitted for for something that if they'd been seen earlier Mm. they wouldn't have had to be yeah and actually the nurse in my story brings this up as well so yeah if people want to read that it's i think it's really important they need to understand this first person account of what it's like to be a nurse facing losing your job mm. so go to my twitter feed all yours because i i saw you shared it this morning yeah and um, and people should people should read that it's very poignant it's very moving this is a, a deeply intelligent nurse and what does she think NHS she's going to do leave but can she get another job somewhere? Cross that bridge when mm. they come to it. Yeah. I'm not saying she. I'm very careful with anonymity. Oh, okay. They. Right. They is not they. non-binary. They is anonymous. They. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never know. thought I'd hear myself say it. I know. I just try. I try to be really careful because they, you know, they're hoping that this won't happen yeah. and they don't lose their job. And it could be that that's what the government's doing because there's a large percentage of people who are vaccinated. I'm looking at some numbers here, right? Number of first doses administered to NHS Trust healthcare workers uh, in the records is 1,350,384. Number of second doses, 1,307,832. So 93% have had a first dose, 90% have had a second dose. Well, for me, there's no good scenario here. They're either going to do it, Mm. which is a, a hideous encroachment on people's bodily sovereignty, but also... So it makes no sense scientifically, or they're bullying people. Yeah. And I, I don't that we're caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And I, I can't believe those are the two options mm. from our government. But also, is it not odd? I, mean, I think it's very odd that these places of medicine, places where sick people go, they're trying to make it so that you can't be sick if you're there. And it's kind of it's like doctors that are saying, don't come into the surgery if you're if you're ill. <laughs> Which is what they're saying, believe it or I not. Know, I know. Don't come into the surgery unless you've had a COVID test. If you're ill, don't come in. I mean, these people have signed up to a life of care, you know, which of course has risks. I'm sure that people have caught all sorts of infectious diseases when they've been nurses and doctors over the years. But you, you know that that's part of the risk of the job. It's like if you become a police officer, you know that there might be a chance you get into some kind of punch up. Somebody might try and stab you. You know, it goes with the territory, doesn't it? You'd think so. Right. Can I just talk about something else that our horrible yes. government are doing? And another reason why I'm on 8 out of 10 on the Angerometer. Okay. okay, Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, so our government of Grinches mm. are dangling this threat about cancelling Christmas oh, yeah. over us again. But Can, why? Well, so um, Sajid Javid said that um, if we all come together and play our part and get our boosters, we can save Christmas. Um, and I didn't know it was in jeopardy. Well, oh well. If you didn't, you you should because there've been threats to Christmas since mid September. Mm. Um, you know, ostensibly about supply chain. You know, everything from turkeys to trees is under threat. Oh yes. Well, I do shortage of the day now because it's so ridiculous that all the things that we're told we're going to run out of. Some things we are slightly short of, but not really. Apparently, mm. there's a shortage of Walker's crisps at the moment. Believe it or not, our government um, has told us this to such an extent that people are actually buying and selling them on eBay for eight quid a packet. I mean, that's the society we now live in. That's a bit tragic. It I don't is. mind. I don't mind if we run out of Brussels sprouts, but That'd everything else I want in plentiful supply, including seeing my family. So Sajid Javid said that young people should urge their older family to get vaccinated. Really? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell my mum what to do. No. This is outrageous. Does he boss his parents right. around like that? But it, 
what a weird thing. What a weird, first of all, if you're not good boys and girls, we might cancel Christmas. Mm. And by the way, boys and girls, go and tell your naughty, your naughty parents yeah. to go and get vaccinated. This is not how it should work no. in a family. It's not our place to boss around no. our elder relatives but and tell them what to why, do. It's, it's up to them. They're grown adults. See, talking going, going back to climate change on Friday when it was Youth Day up in uh, Glasgow, and the BBC and Sky were interviewing all these kids, right? Who was saying, "Oh, we must do this. We must do that. You've got to, you know, give up eating meat. We've got to save the planet." It's like, shut up, <laughs> just shut up. Mm. I'll ask you for your advice when you're a bit older. Thanks. I'm not taking the advice of an eight-year-old. Yeah, as to what car I should be driving. Thanks. Yeah, don't turn us all into younger armies to to bully no. older generations in what no. to do. I mean, that's not cool. I mean, and I don't think my mum would appreciate me telling her what to do. No. She can decide which medical intervention she chooses to have. But I'm really fed up with this idea that Christmas needs yes. saving. I know. And is this really what this government wants to be remembered for? You know, Cromwell is still remembered for cancelling oh. Christmas. Yeah. Does Boris Johnson want that to be I his legacy? I don't think he does, but I think Sajid Javid is a bit of a character on this front because he's the one that made them all start wearing masks again inside the Houses of Parliament because he said, or when somebody said to him, don't you think it's a really bad example that the Tory party don't wear masks? Mm. So guess what? Next time we saw them at PMQs, most of them were wearing masks. And he seemed so promising when he started. He did. It didn't take long to go native, no. did it? no. So I don't want to be defeatist or gloomy, but it, this has actually, it's actually hit me a little bit. Mm. It's not like me to talk about my feelings, Mike. I know. In public. Well, I'm glad that I've been able to bring that out. But I'm, you, you were coaxing it out of me. <laughs> the thing is, I actually feel like I can't make plans for Christmas. I was thinking, should I, my kids are a bit old for it, but should we book a panto? Should I send to the theatre? And I thought, well, what's the point? It might be cancelled. No, you should. No, you should definitely do that. Uh, should I? Yeah. Well, I know the one thing that won't be cancelled, and that's that's going to go and see my mum. Yeah. I, I don't really care what rules are brought mm. in. I'm not going no. to cancel a family Christmas. But I do feel slightly defeated about the idea of, of planning something in the real world that could be snatched away Taken at the last away. minute. Because no, when it was snatched away last year, was the 20th of December. I remember. We were told to be good boys mm. and girls and save Christmas. And on the 20th of December, they snatched it away. I remember. And I don't want to go through that again. No. So I don't want to feel myself being uh, sucked into this sort of defeatist, gloomy thinking because mm. Christmas should be a bright, bedecked, tinselly bauble of joy right. to look forward well, to. Well, I'm going to America. So um, unless they stop me doing that, I don't care what they do. Well, what about travel restrictions? Well, you might exactly. end up they might, they rowing might go, your way there, well, like might, Greta yeah. Thunberg style. Yeah, exactly right. They might end up going, oh, so the Americans might go, oh, look, the English have got so many uh, problems now, we're going to ban them again. Because that's the mm. other thing that happens. But hopefully it won't happen. Yeah. We shall see. Long live Christmas. Yeah, long live Christmas indeed. Laura, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Laura Dosworth uh, will be back, of course, same time next week. Um, she was came in as an eight. I'm hoping she might leave as a seven. Maybe. <laughs> Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.